Hi, I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of Humanitu, a podcast that empowers connection through conversations of humanness and creativity. Today I'm talking with Sarah McDari, an interdisciplinary artist based in Brooklyn, New York. Sarah is Iranian and American. She comes from a family that honors two religions, two languages, and two cultures. Sarah and I talked as protests grew across the United States after police officers in Minneapolis killed George Floyd. This, on top of months of dealing with extraordinary upheaval and isolation due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sarah was not sure she wanted to talk with me. She told me she has a sense of mistrust toward, in particular, white men. On the other hand, Sarah also has important and valuable perspectives to share, and she wants to share them. So she decided that she was willing to talk with me, and she also was willing to put me in my place should the need arise. In our conversation, we talk about the real experienced impact on a human when being treated as other. We talk about differences between life in Iran and the U.S. and how they don't play out the way many Americans assume. We talk about politics and racism and the responsibility that each of us has to be curious, to self-educate, and not to just swallow what the media gives us. We talk about a lot of other things too, including how Sarah's creative work serves as a coping mechanism and a process for healing and for counteracting stereotypes that are placed on her and those who likewise come from Iran or elsewhere in that region of the world. This conversation requires a willingness for many of us here in the U.S. to listen openly and to reflect on what truths that we have held about Iran and Iranians, and even about America and Americans. And in that way, this conversation is quintessential humanity, and I'm so glad that Sarah decided to share in it. Here's my conversation with Sarah McDarry. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to Humanitude. Thanks for being here. Hi, Adam. Thank you for having me. You know, we talked a few days ago in preparation for this conversation, and I know that you were feeling the weight of a lot of what's happening, even right around you in your neighborhood. And I just want to ask, how are you doing today? And if you would care to share what you're seeing and hearing and feeling and, and all these things that are happening right around you in the midst of current events. Okay, well, just to give a little bit of background, I'm, I currently live in Brooklyn, New York, where a lot of the protests are happening, and I live in Bed-Stuy, which is a black neighborhood. Um, I work also in this neighborhood, and it, everything that's happening uh, very much hurts a lot. I'm very angry. Um, I'm upset. I um, feel traumatized. I also am in a partnership with a black man. So watching him kind of go through the motions, the past 10 days has been very difficult. Uh, just in general, it's been really, really hard. And I'm honestly very nervous to talk to you today. <laughs> What makes you nervous to talk with me? Um, you know, there's just uh, elements of mistrust. Um, and I also, before I moved to New York, so just to give everybody a little background who doesn't know me personally, um, I'm originally from Iran and... Um, I come from a bicultural family. My mother is American and my father is Iranian, but I grew up in Iran and moved to Colorado Springs when I was 17 years old. Uh, and so Colorado, that whole nine years of my life before I moved to New York in 2013 were incredibly difficult and carried a lot of trauma just being in, a, in that space. And so I don't necessarily have like the fondest memories uh, from Colorado or, you know, talking to people from Colorado. So I'm just nervous about it. <laughs> okay. Well, and I am not originally from Colorado. I've been here for the last few years. I happen to be located here now and don't consider Humanitu at least any longer to be a Colorado uh you know, website and podcast, but rather that it's about the humanness and creativity of people wherever they are. And that is in part why I reached out to you 
and want to talk with you because I know that you have a wealth of experience and knowledge and an incredible voice of, you know, passion and all these things to share through your art and in conversation with me here today. So thank you for being willing to do this, even though there are some nerves, even though there is an awful lot going on uh, in the world and even right around you in your neighborhood, a lot of emotional things. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm uh, glad to be a part of this. You know, it's just, uh, it's anxiety inducing. And I think it's important for me to do this for people who are there, who are listening or anywhere who is listening, who feels the same or possibly felt the same way while I lived in Colorado, which I know a lot of people still do feel that way in that town or that city. But it's not, um, it's not just that town. It's something that happens all, all across America, all across right. the world. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I would appreciate getting to learn from you is you mentioned the bicultural family. You grew up spending your childhood in Iran, then coming to the U.S. and with uh, a Christian mother, Muslim father, bilingual household. Mm -hmm. There's, I don't, I almost don't even know where to start with a question there because I feel like there's so much for me to learn from your perspective, your worldview, and I guess also your perspective of what you have known or what you see in the United States uh, because of the relationship maybe between the U.S. and Iran, Christians and Muslims, and just all these these lines that people use to separate us. Mm -hmm. I think you have a lot of knowledge and, and feeling to share on this, if you don't mind. Yes. So thank you for asking. Um, I do have a lot to share. I'm going to try my best. So I did grow up in a bilingual home. My mother is American and Christian, and my father was Iranian and Muslim, is Iranian and Muslim, and they both actually currently live in Iran. Um, when I was 17, my father decided that it was best for us to come to the United States to, get, uh, to go through college because of the way... Um, degrees are held to a higher standard in the United States, just in general, uh, in the world. And so he wanted options for us, basically. Um, but it was a it was a very difficult thing that he did because he ended up staying in Iran. So when they when my my mom literally moved us here and kind of set us up until we were all in college, and then she went back to live with my dad and that took about four and a half, five years. So they actually had to live separately. Wow. So um, basically one of the, the, the experiences I had when I first came to the United States was I just remember like walking into the high school the first day and I had never been into a school this big before with this many amenities and, you know, just, like so much money, basically, I'd never, and it was a public school, but um, I'd never seen that before. And it was shocking to me that everybody kind of had a labeled group. Like, that was really uh, unusual. I'd never really seen that before, where everybody had a label and a story that was kind of told for them. And they were assigned to it, and they followed it blindly almost, you know, to the point of the type of music they listen to, the color of clothing, where they sit, how they sit, how they talk. I mean, so this was, like, really unusual to me, and I didn't quite understand where I fit. And so I think, you know, this was when I was a teenager. I didn't really know anything I mean I still don't know anything but I didn't know anything about myself back then I think I know myself a little better today okay and I'm realizing that oh I don't fit because I none of these labels belong to my story my story isn't told and so you know the the biggest label I would get is terrorist uh so oh my goodness. I rejected that label because 
it didn't make sense for me. I'm, I wasn't, you know, <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't a violent person or hurting people or, you know, and so I rejected that label, obviously, as I think many POC and black people do reject those negative labels um, that are put on us because these are the stories that are told in America. So right. my art became me telling my story, which confuses a lot of people a lot of times because they've never heard it before. <laughs> and they refuse to hear it a lot of times. They reject it. It doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't follow the same type of um, rhetoric that they're used to hearing. But actually, I feel like that fuels my fire more than anything. So thank you for that. But yeah, I started making artwork when I moved to Colorado because I needed a way to manage uh, my anger and having to deal with all these issues. When people, when you say that they didn't understand or recognize your story, they didn't know what to do with that. Was that, are you speaking from the place of because you were from Iran and that's it? Or was it because they didn't know what to do with someone who had the bicultural, bilingual background? Or was it simply just, well, this is what we've heard about Iran, so you mm -hmm. have to fit that narrative and you're saying, yeah. hold on. That's a good question. Yeah, both, actually. So I know that, for example, I don't have an accent, right? My mom um, taught us English from when we were children. So I don't have an accent. But I didn't learn how to read and write English until maybe sixth or seventh grade. And it was like taught from my mother. So it was like um, homeschool type. And we had some English courses in, in Iran. It's part of like a foreign language that we learn. But um, my writing and reading level was low, for example, when I first came to the United States. So I, I needed to go to ESL cl class. And just the whole environment of ESL class is a very weird, strange environment to be in it put another label on you didn't it yeah yeah definitely a lot of a lot of the students felt that way and were trying to figure out what the hell was going on around them you know so i think it's both it's both people especially in colorado springs it's a big military town it's a big conservative christian town um and they aren't necessarily told about all the great things that Muslims do or all the great things about Iranian culture or, you know, Western Asia, Central Western Asia culture, you know, like, so I know that they read me immediately as, well, actually, you know what it is? So because of, this is what I wanted to say, because I don't have an accent, I can pass as an American a lot of times, you know, especially if I can, if I maybe wear more gap or something type of clothing so I can pass. So I I'm allowed in spaces, but as soon as I speak my mind or if somebody asks me, where are you from? Or, you know, you look like, you know, you, where are you, you know, you look different. Like I've gotten that you look different. Where are you from? And mm -hmm. a lot of times when I would say in Colorado Springs, the, um, the energy would change to the point of where I felt, my life was in danger. I felt threatened, you know. That's very real. And so this is the environment I was in. And even in college, uh, you know, professors would say things. And they're directly in a position of power over you. And it's just, it's just very difficult to be in that space as a young person because you don't really know how to handle it. But also as a person who came from a place where I wasn't particularly being, you know, oppressed in that way, like based off of my race. So it's just kind of a foreign experience all around. And I think, I think just that environment was not, not educated well enough on world matters, on different cultures. They're not exposed to different cultures and so just because I'm Iranian that was a big you know wall all of a sudden immediately but then being bicultural 
uh, and having experiences with both worlds and having family in both worlds um, doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Like they don't understand how Muslim could marry a Christian, how we could practice Ramadan and still celebrate Christmas. Like for some reason, I don't understand why people don't, you know, don't see why that's possible. But it was just, it's my norm, you know, it's how I grew up. So it's just normal to me. So I have a hard time understanding why people don't imagine that as a possibility. I don't know. I don't know why. It seems fine to me. (laughs) I think that leads to a lot of the things that actually also baffle me about a lot of cultural and political and social things in this country. And Mm -hmm. I grew up, I was born and raised in the Midwest. I have lived in various places, but if I look at, from my perspective, the whole of Americans, the lack or unwillingness to just plain see possibilities Mm -hmm. has always sort of baffled me. Or at least when I say always, I mean as an adult. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I got out in the world and started figuring out my own thoughts, learning my own things, unlearning the things that I might have been socialized to believe as a child. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is, you know, the system everybody keeps talking about, right? It's like the capitalism. It's like, you know, when I was telling you earlier about the labels that you're given in high school, these are like literally capitalist, you know, ways of controlling population. (laughs) Like, in order to get people to buy, buy this, buy that, and that means you're an individual, and that means you're this. But in reality, it's not an individual. You're not actually being an individual. Um, you're, in a way, promoting selfishness. But mm, you know, it's like a guise almost. It doesn't. It's not actually with from the inside. It's only a shell, and and. They, I feel like, you know, it's all on purpose. I don't think it just happens. I don't think people are unaware of these things by accident. I think it's very intentional. And so the, the system is, you know, designed to keep the oppressed um, oppressed and the oppressor uh, knowing of this. You know, they, it really is designed this way because... A lot of the people I come into contact with who are unaware of this are genuinely lovely people. They're like nice people who would invite you over for dinner if you were hungry or whatever. But, you know, they are kind of brainwashed uh, to think that, you know, that black people are bad. (laughs) Middle Eastern people are terrorists. You know, Muslim people are psycho. I don't know. There's something about being able to categorize and put those labels on, so I think, for an awful lot of people to then feel like the world that otherwise is too large with too many things going on for them to really comprehend, this mm-hmm. is an easier way to handle that. Well, let me let me strip it all down to sort of black and white comprehension, and this is the way I view the world. Let's keep it simple uh, rather than allowing for the full spectrum of possibilities. And it mm-hmm. sounds like from what you're saying that maybe you felt, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so mm-hmm. I guess I'll put it this way as a question. Mm -hmm. Did you feel as a kid growing up in Iran, like you were more of an individual than ultimately how you felt when you came over here to the US? Yes, absolutely. Yes, because, you know, it's weird. It's interesting because, so I don't necessarily agree, you know, with the governments uh, in Iran. And, you know, I can't say too much about that publicly. Okay. But there are positives in the ways they go about certain things that I realized how important was in shaping my power, my strength, you know. Like, for example, in Iran, currently, from elementary school to college, you go to separate schools, girls and boys go to separate schools. Now, this might sound weird, but I think it actually is way more effective in terms of learning, being a learning environment that's not necessarily distracted by sex, especially in high school environments, you know, because that's something I witnessed in high school in America. It's like 80% of high school was 
learning how to socialize with the opposite sex rather than, you know, math and history and geography. Right. So, like, certain things I'm like, you know, I had a way better education in Iran before I came to the U.S., which is, you know, not common knowledge. People think that a country like Iran would have a lower education level, but it's not true at all. I mean, I was in junior year in high school, and I was learning calculus in Iran, and I come to the United States, and my level of students were still learning algebra. This is something I learned in middle school, you know. So this is very, this is very real. And so I think that was like a benefit. Like, it's interesting that, you know, I come from a religious family on my dad's side. Actually, both sides of my family are religious. My mom's side of the family, there's, you know, Christian pastors and people who do mission trips and things like that on my mom's side, like uncles and stuff. And on my dad's side also, my dad's side is very religious as well. My grandmother was kind of known to be a very religious woman in our neighborhood and a lot of people would come to her for advice and things like that. And uh, she was very compassionate, passionate, just beautiful person all around. So I come from this type of background and I see a lot of the benefits in spirituality. I don't necessarily identify as one or the other. I personally feel that I'm all of them and just all around spiritual person. But I definitely believe in a higher power. Um, But I'm also weary of labeling it or giving it any sort of material or worldly, you know, attribute. I think that's dangerous. But there's things that, for example, in the Islamic religion that I'm thankful for. For example, like covering up your body. And this goes to towards men and women. In the United States, they only concentrate on the women's covering. But men also have, you know, um, there's like guidelines on covering men's body as well in Islam. And okay. this, a lot of it comes from um, not trying to attract attention or status with your clothing. It's like trying to be modest so that people see you as who you are rather than the brand you're wearing, right? This is the, this is the I mean, I don't know if you know, but this is like the, the deep, you know, intention behind this act is to be modest so that you aren't um, leading with your clothes and your money. And, you know, then all these countries took it and ran with it and applied their own cultural, patriarchal bullshit background to it. And it's practiced and it's put into law. And this is why you see Islam practiced in different countries uh, in different ways. Okay. Like, that's why all the hijab looks different depending on what country you're in. This has nothing to do with Islam. This very much has to do with the cultural background of that specific place and environment. It's just like Christianity, right? Like, you could, people could label themselves Christian, um, but there's like a million different ways people practice it based off of what, how it makes sense to them and what their cultural and history be, was before they read this book or heard somebody talk about it. So this is important to take into consideration. But like personally, I believe that growing up, covering myself gave me an incredible amount of power because I wasn't necessarily worried about what I looked like all the time or um, leading with my body. You know, I wasn't reduced to just my body, which is something I, I think is an incredibly large problem in the United States with women like an example I'd like to use is that you know people think that unless some woman is oppressed you know yet she's basically you know dressed the same way as a nun right but a nun is considered pure or for example we use women's bodies in bikinis to advertise for a can of Red Bull 
which I think is just as damaging towards women's psyche. <laughs> Do you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. So who is really the oppressed one here? <laughs> like, so there's just a lot of these things that I see based off of my experience and background. And I'm just tired of hypocrisy, really. So um, I, li I like to talk about these things with people and, and bring it to their intention to really you know, think critically about everything because there's always motives behind messages and you have to distinguish what the motive is and if it's, you know, a motive you really agree with or not and stand by or not. And you see this all over the United States with movies, imagery, news, you know, art, everything. So it's incredibly frustrating. So there's the American perception that you're referring to, this perception that in a country like Iran, people are oppressed and really mean they don't have the freedoms that we do here and that the Americans, uh, you know, they tend to, I, I don't want to lump all of us together because I know that there are people like me who do not get um, hung up in the, the jingoism, the rah-rah gung-ho thing of this exceptionalism as if we're somehow this uh, higher being of humans because we were born in this part of the world. But you are, I'm sure, well aware there is a significant uh, segment of the American population that oh. pegs their view of everything to this idea that we are exceptional and individual and the ultimate of freedom. So mm -hmm. I love hearing what you're sharing so far because it helps us to learn and debunk some of the myth about, well, what really establishes freedom? What really establishes oppression? And I do think, you know, the word hypocrisy was coming to my mind as you were speaking. And we see that throughout, well, just everything. Mm -hmm. And I think all the political parties and all the political, um, you know, governmental structures, whether that's democracy or some other form. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that gets overlooked in the U.S. because of what has been fed as this is by far the best way mm -hmm. and we're doing it. We're number one. And I think the, the I, what I just want to say, make sure to say is that this isn't just the United States. It's something, it's like a, um, it's a trait of governments, you know, so it's not just one country that is, does this. The United States just has a very particular brand of manipulation uh, in the way they do it, you know, it's so good. They do such a good job that, you know, half, more than half the population is completely unaware it's happening. Like in countries like Iran, they're doing it, but people know it's happening. They know, you know, they know, okay. you know, they don't necessarily trust anything on the TV. Here they trust stuff on the TV. <laughs> on news stations, they immediately trust it. And, and this is, you know, um, this is what I'm asking people to question more uh, in terms of news to read more than one source and read sources from multiple angles and about the same story. And I think that will help you paint a little bit better picture of possibly what could have happened. But I guess, I guess it's better to just, you know, be open to being wrong. That is, I think that speaks to ego that mm -hmm. people have. But again, if, if I stick more in, I mean, I, I have been fortunate to travel and I've been, I am a very curious person and I like to talk with people from all over and learn about these, these things that I wouldn't otherwise know if I didn't actually engage in a human conversation. Mm -hmm. But I also want to keep my, my words here more to what I am aware of from the, the American perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that we like to believe that we somehow have ownership of correctness. Again, if we go back to the lack of possibilities, right? Our way is the way. I'm the only one intelligent enough to think through this thing and determine what's right. And I just wish we would step back from our egos a little bit, a lot, and listen. Yeah. Well, also, I think ego is, you know, encouraged here. So it's a part of the culture. You see it in every movie, you know, it's always, you know, I don't know. 
it's always an ego in the movies. The characters are basic egos. So it's it's very much encouraged here. And we're heading away from like more of a spiritual existence where, you know, we really tap into our humanity. That These are the dangers that you see happening in the United States because of capitalism, because of the encouragement towards individuality in quotes and um selfishness i think and ego as you said so it's so we can't i think it's really difficult you know you can't necessarily blame people because they're literally being like spoon-fed this stuff but i think it's really important to just try as much as possible to have these types of conversations with people and to remember that nobody's better than another person and that we are all at fault no matter what level you think or I think we have gotten to we are still human and therefore you know sinful or however you want to say we started this conversation with you know I I wanted to check in with you about what's Mm -hmm. going on with protests and all these things on top of the pandemic on top of all the systemic issues that have already existed in the politics and all these things Mm -hmm. happening now all at once in a heightened way all these things have been there but I think that Mm -hmm. one of the things about being willing to be wrong that you mentioned some minutes ago I think that's one of I I hope it's a positive some of us I'm going to speak to people like me who have uh, white skin in the past, we've maybe stayed quieter or completely silent on some of these issues out of fear of, well, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to say it the wrong way. I'm going to say it to the wrong person. Mm -hmm. And now I know that there are more of us who are trying, Mm -hmm. you mentioned trying and being willing to step out there and maybe we don't get it right every time, but we have to be willing to risk again. I'll say ego. We have to be willing to risk being wrong, having that deflated, and learning. Yeah. You know, and I don't, I like questions a lot, especially if they come from a place of curiosity. Because curiosity is one of, you know, I think the best things that we are born with. Um, so, and you see it in children a lot. And it's just amazing. You know, you, when you see it in kids, it's just absolutely mind blowing, you know. But I think at some point we, for some reason, convince ourselves or we lose it or we think we don't need it anymore. But that's not true. I think it's something that will be with you for the rest of your life until you die. So I think that it's okay to ask questions. You have to make sure the person you're asking from is ready for you. You know, if they're having a bad day or they're not in the best place, then maybe it's not the best time. So I think you have to be very sensitive and conscious about these things. Um, but I, I encouraged asking questions because if you never ask, then you will continue to think it, you know. And if it's a problematic thought, it will seep into your psyche and you will teach it to other people and you will pass it on to your children and your family. Uh, So I would rather people ask questions until they are, until they fully understand or they feel convinced or, you know, but I also don't want it, don't want all the pressure to be put on the person answering, right? There's a responsibility you have that of educating yourself, especially as an adult, especially in this time where we have access to so much information so easily. Um, There's really no excuse at this point, you know. I mean, it's just so easy, especially in the United States, like where you can have internet at McDonald's for free or a library. Maybe now, you know, libraries are probably shut down still. But but there's a lot of resources out there, I believe, um, that really leaves very little room, which is why I think so many people lose patience. You know, the things that we're talking about very much are at the heart of what you're expressing through visual art. And so I'd love to learn more about that work and what some of these things are meaning to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But before we get to the specific art, I guess, I'm curious about 
what your experience was when you studied here in the U.S., finished up high school, went to college, ultimately at some point along the way, went back to study photography in Iran mm-hmm. before returning to the U.S. And I'm curious what 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 have you seen in going back and forth and as you've continued to process this stuff through your artwork? It was interesting. Yeah, I ended up going back for about a year and and I was in school. I was at a college level. And so it certain things, I mean, they do not have the same amount of resources as they do here. So they rig a lot of what happens. Like, for example, just in photography, which is really great because I learned how to work with less resources. <laughs> so here it's like almost like a piece of cake a little bit because there's everything. So I appreciate that. I appreciate the resilience that that country has in being able to continue with no, no matter what. Because, you know, I don't know if you know, but the United States has a ton of sanctions on Iran and they have had for a long time. So a lot of resources aren't imported into Iran because um, this is how the United States controls the world, right? They put sanctions on countries that they don't necessarily politically agree with and try to choke them from the inside, Uh, which is, you know, basically the same thing they're doing to their own people during these protests. So these are the things I think people need to really, really, really be aware of, Uh, especially people who are claiming to be, you know, a liberal or something like that. Like you should really know what you are standing for. And you really, you really should know as a citizen of this country, what your country is responsible for in the world. I have a question about the sanctions. So I am aware that the U.S. has used sanctions, and I'd have to admit that my knowledge of what that really means ultimately is limited. Uh, A question that came to my mind the other day related to it is just, okay, the U.S. then does not trade with Iran. In that case, we don't allow these things to... No, they don't allow any countries to do trade with Iran. So that's my question is how... So that's through just influence... Of the U.S. The United saying States, somehow we'll punish you if you trade with them. Exactly, they will. They will. They have presence, prison sentences and million billion dollar fines that um, other countries will get if they trade with Iran. Hmm. So they. They. This is again. This is a responsibility that I think every U.S. citizen should really take seriously: is to know how much military power your country has. And how this is the how they use to control the rest of the world. Europe and all of them, I mean, why do you think they're being so polite right now to Trump? They hate him. The whole world hates Trump. Uh-huh. But why do you think they're being so polite? They're scared. It's out of fear. They, they're, they're scared to stick up to him because of how much power he has. He flaunts his power, you know. So I, and as, as an American citizen, which I am, by the way, but other American citizens really, really, really should know what their country is doing to the rest of the world. And not even Iran, Venezuela. I mean, you pick a, pick a name, really, pick a country, and just historically what they have done. So when, yeah. you know, when, when things like terrorist attacks happen in the United States, it's not completely from nowhere. I mean, not to say that it's right in any way or sort to take another person's life. I am absolutely in disagreement with that, no matter what the situation is. But, you know, people have breaking points and you see it time and time again in history. So, I mean. Right. And that's where we are again here internally within the country. Yeah. And, and I mean, you could you could see it. People, you know. School right now, anti-bullying is a big thing, right? For a while, anti-bullying was a big thing. This scenario could directly be applied. The United States is literally a bully. <laughs> it's like the world's bully. That's in the best of times. In the, in the best way that of America time. acts, as opposed to I'm saying, who's in the White House right now? Yeah, I mean, yeah, historically, I mean, yes. Even Obama did a lot of problematic things. 
and was not able to have the impact I think he probably wanted because of how much resistance. Because at the end of the day, the president isn't exactly, you know, have the most power. He is... Not supposed to. Yeah, he is kind of a puppet. And so there's people that we don't see, that we don't know the names of, that ultimately run the country. But they um, are much more on Trump's side than, let's say, they were on Obama's side. So they were constantly battling Obama, um, but they give Trump a lot of, uh, you know, support. Right. Well, that and that's what I've said since the beginning with this one is simply that this one person in the White House could not have done all the damage that he has done and could not have been the bully that he has been, except for he was enabled by all these other people who decided to go down that path with him and make everything possible. So mm -hmm. I hold them at least as accountable in my mind as the one person who is sitting at the head of it. Right. Okay. Well, I to talk about your art and some of these things, mm -hmm. I know that politics are a significant part of that. I know that also being a woman mm -hmm. is something that you, of course, use your voice to speak up for and say, I, you know, oh, I don't want to put words in your mouth what you say. I want to hear from you what some of these things are. But you formed with uh, some other women, Italia, a collective of artists, all women that are making this up from different uh, vantage points and experiences in the world. Yeah, so... When I was, we were all, we all met in graduate school and, uh, and, and, you know, I went to graduate school in New York City. So a lot of people come from all over the world. And as we know, it's a very diverse city. And the women that I found myself relating to the most were also foreigners. And there was a woman from Italy from Israel, from South Korea, and we had our very own Texan and me from Iran. <laughs> and did, sorry, did you say Texan? Yeah. Your very own Texan? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. And we had a lot of different perspectives coming and we all had different ideas on what feminism means and how it affects our life here in the United States and in our home countries. Uh, so it was never about us all agreeing with each other. It was more about we're all really different and we're all really curious. So let's be there for each other. Let's support each other. Let's love each other. And let's talk about these things um, with each other and give each other like a space to be able to express yourself because we all felt that in the classroom we weren't allowed to per se because even though I went to an art school in New York City it's incredibly you know racist um I think all my faculty were white I never had a person of color faculty I'm pretty sure 90% were men I think maybe I had two women three women three women um, and like I said, you know, I would show them my work and they just had no background information or history or knowledge or experience with me, but also other people who were coming from different places. And so we kind of got the short end of the stick in a lot of ways and, um, I witnessed firsthand a lot of opportunities and support, financial support, support with equipment, uh, go towards the white students, uh, specifically the white American students. And, you know, in a way that makes sense, I guess, if there are no people in the upper level in administration or faculty that can relate to a student from Iran or a black student or a student from Israel, they can't necessarily see this person in, in, in its her or his entirety or their entirety. So they can't relate. So they don't see the potential in them. But like I've seen, for example, faculty members open their arms for a white student because it reminds them of their own youth. You know, the student reminds okay. them of their own youth. 
and how somebody held out a hand to them and how much they appreciated it. And so that's, those are the people they go after. There's a familiarity. Yeah, it's the familiarity. I mean, and this is me giving them the benefit of the doubt here, right? I'm being very, very nice about it. I'm assuming that it's not uh, based off malicious intent, but I don't know. So, but I, but I do think that it is a factor in a way of maybe, maybe they can't relate. Maybe they don't see it, you know, because they just don't know anything about it. And I see that, you know, I saw that time and time again in school, in art school, in New York City, supposedly a very diverse place, supposedly a very open-minded field, right? Yeah. 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 You, you mentioned one of the women in the, the group being from Israel. And so historically then, there's also those uh, issues just like with America and Iran, Israel and Iran, yeah. Israel and America being allies. But the two of you as individuals are part of this group mm-hmm. of five women. And I'm yeah. curious what then has been your experience and process and how the two of you come together and you be there for each other in this way that you're describing when, again, through your childhood, you were in yeah. Iran. And I assume we're told at some point that's not the way that's to go. Yeah, but, you know, I was also told that, you know, don't be friends with Americans, but you know, my mom was American. So that, you know, ruined that right there. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. This, I think this is why maybe I have such, um, I don't know. I think maybe this is where my perspective comes from is that what the government was telling me in Iran per se was directly opposite of what I was witnessing in my own family. So it never made sense. And so, I mean, and it's, it's, it applies exactly the same to here, you know, I can't think that Middle Eastern people are bad without hating my own self. And I don't hate myself. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think I'm a bad person. So I can't do that, which is, which is what America is asking people of color and black people to do is to hate themselves, hate themselves. Yeah. And 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 it and it gets to you. It really, you know, they really do a good job at it, and it really seeps in. I don't want to say like Iran's good and America's bad, or America's good and Iran's bad. They're basically almost exactly the same, from my experience. Um, they just have different styles. So from childhood, I directly saw um, difference in humans as opposed to politics. So from my experience, humans are much more understanding and loving than politics. So um, when I met my friend from Israel, um, we immediately fell in love with each other because we're from the same part of the world and a lot of our cultural norms are the same. We look the same, you know. Our language similar in terms of how it sounds to outsiders. I mean, we eat the same food a lot of times. Like, just a lot of the cultural things were almost exactly the same. And she was somebody I felt incredibly comfortable with. And I think I provided her that same comfort. But we were taught to hate each other, which is interesting. You know, and we would have never been able to be exposed to each other had we not come to New York City, which is why New York City is great. And I think we realized a lot. We learned a lot in those years while we were in school. And it continues, you know. She, she went back to Israel. And so I know that she has a different understanding now living there as well. Was it after school that you did your NYC photography project photographing people in their homes while they slept? Was that, that was beforehand? That was my first project in school. Okay. Yeah. So when I moved to New York city, I got really, really, really lucky and found a really, really cheap apartment in Washington Heights. And all my roommates at the time, if I remember correctly, were native New Yorkers. So Um, and they were all strangers to me. I didn't know anybody. So I moved in and they were all American and native New Yorkers. And 
I remember talking to them and being like, wow, these are the most like educated Americans I have ever met. These are the most worldly Americans I have ever met. They're so kind and they know so much about Iran and so much about the world and was so different from my experience from being in Colorado. So immediately I felt a level of comfort and trust with these people and I was meeting people through them and, you know, just being in New York City for a little bit, you kind of notice who's a native and who isn't. You start to notice these different things. And so I would meet strangers in bars and, you know, I don't know, anywhere, anywhere you would meet somebody and go up to them and say hi. And then I would ask are you native to New York? Yes or no, you know, and then I would explain to them that I'm doing a photography project. And if I could come and stay the night at their house one night, uh, and photograph them while they were sleeping, which was, you know, weird to a lot of people, I guess. But um, New York City is also kind of a space where people come from the outside all the time. And so staying at somebody's house for a night or two nights, instead of in a hotel or something, is common. So it wasn't as difficult as it may sound, or it wasn't as unusual to natives, um, having okay. people come stay with them for a night or, or, you know, or two. And I tried to be very out of their way. So I would come at night, late at night, after dinner and all that, and I would spend some time with them. And I have like a whole series of videos that I actually have that I don't show on my site, which kind of end up being a bit of confessions for them because I'm a stranger to them, and so I'm anonymous. So they kind of tell me these really um, intimate things, and I'll show those one day. But I did that, and then, you know, I'd ask them, where would you like me to sleep? I'll sleep. I slept on anything you could ever imagine. New York City apartments are incredibly small. Um, I slept in kitchens, halfway in the bathroom, in the hallway, you know, on the floor. Like, And then I would ask, okay, you know, I'm going to set up my camera in your room, and I would set up the angle, and have it ready as and because as the lights goes off you can't necessarily focus and they're all long exposures so I would spend about an hour an hour and a half two hours in the room taking photographs and they're all long exposures like maybe a minute two minutes and I, I kind of did it as an exercise I guess for myself because I felt like I needed to plant some roots in this city and I needed to get to know it a little bit better and feel um, feel the trust and feel the love and I and that's what I got so it it was for me I think more than anything else which okay. is what my all my work is really it's, it's, it's a coping mechanism do you feel like there was anything in particular in the process of that project and people welcoming you, trusting you, not only in their spaces and overnight, but to be photographing them at in a state that is as vulnerable as can be, really. They're asleep mm -hmm. while you're observing them, essentially, and capturing it visually. Mm -hmm. Did you learn, was there anything in particular that stood out? Was your takeaway from that experience of this is what I've learned about people or about myself or whatever it might have been? Um, I learned that being a woman probably allowed me to do this more than if I was a man. I learned that most people are just genuinely beautiful souls. <laughs> um, loving would never want to hurt somebody or, you know, just don't have hate in their heart necessarily. And I think it's placed there by outside sources. I learned so much. I learned so much about the city quickly, about who lives where, about how this is, the New York City is segregated, where the wealth is. I learned a lot about... Well, and about how people live as well, because of uh, some of those spaces are pretty cluttered. But it's yeah. because, I mean, it's, 
it's almost an unavoidable thing for a lot of people living in New York in small spaces, right? Yeah, to a sense. Um, I think, you know, a lot of times when I see clutter specifically, it's, um, I interpret it differently. I think I think about it in terms of comforts and why they need these comforts. I also think that with people who have a ton of tattoos. Like, I think, like okay. the image of, <laughs> just like side note, the image of people with tattoos here <laughs> is just like, like they're, you know, bad or something or dangerous or intense. But when I see somebody with tattoos, I think, oh my God, this person is such a teddy bear because they felt so much pain mm. or, you know, so much that they had to do this. It's another way of telling their story, even if it's only for themselves. Even if it's only for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, yeah, because it's such a tattooing, you know, it's such a painful process. And a lot of times from my experience, when you go through pain and trauma, um, you you uh, crave it a little bit afterwards. It becomes a part of your DNA a little bit, which is what my body is mind work, the performance artwork is about, um, which I would like to say that I am going to be doing a residency in Colorado Springs in November um, as a part of the FEARS program with uh, University of Colorado. And I, okay. I I will be doing this performance. I think, I don't know what happened by then, but but this performance was largely about satisfying my personal trauma in a healthy way rather than hurting myself. Um, but so tattooing, I see that a little bit as like a satisfying, a trauma. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to learn more also then about the artwork that you say you do this for yourself first, which of course, um, I think ideally a lot of artists, that's where we are rather than trying to figure out, well, what can I do to please others, right? We start with this as some sort of inquiry into ourselves, expression of ourselves, getting ourselves out there for ourselves first. And I'm wondering about mm-hmm. that with your work with the red calligraphy. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you... Tell me about that and and what you are expressing or exploring there. Mm-hmm. So when I when I first started making work, um, it was I think the first thing I ever drew was a charcoal drawing. It was a self portrait, and it was after I had lost a grandparent. And I was in the United States, and my grandparent passed away was in Iran, and so I couldn't feel like I was able to mourn her. Actually, my grandmother, who I was talking about earlier. Okay. Um, so I was incredibly close with her, which is also the photo series, Mamani, which is the first series on my website, is for her. And this was me mourning after I went back to Iran after her passing. So it always came from a, a, a place of healing for me. And I found that drawing was really healing because of the time it takes and the space it allows you for yourself. And then I moved into photography and as I went to school, I learned how to work with video and started making more videos. And my work was largely about, you know, it was always for me, but it was always kind of a way that I, f- I felt like I needed to tell people that I felt like I needed to counteract all the stereotypes that people normally have of people who are where I'm from or, you know, wear clothes that I do or don't or my religious background, cultural background. So I felt like I needed to defend that. And recently, in the past maybe two, three years, I've come to a different place where I feel that I want to satisfy my own complexities more than justify my right to live. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? So. My work, the Zen work came from that. The Zafran on my tongue comes from that. The performance work and calligraphic work, the Zen work, which you asked about, is kind of a combination. So I love to cook. 
a lot. And I find myself cooking all the time because the tastes and smells that I grew up with are hard to find here, even in New York City. And so I end up having to make those things for myself to feel, you know, home. And saffron, or saffron, how they say in English, is a spice that is, you know, used in a lot of Iranian recipes. 90% of all saffron in the world is made in Iran. It's, you know, much cheaper in Iran than it is anywhere else in the world. So we have a lot of it. We use a lot of it. And it has a very distinct flavor and smell. And it always takes me back. So I started experimenting with saffron. And it has a lot of health properties. I mean, it's an ancient spice. It's been used for thousands of years for lots of different things, dyes, medicine. And it's the, it's, you know, on the flower, there's stigma and a stamen in the flower. Yeah. Yeah. So a saffron is the stigma part of a flower. Okay. And it's the feminine part of the flower. Uh, and when I found this out, it, it got me really excited because I didn't know this. And I just continued to do research on it and research the visuals around it. And, you know, when you have like a source of inspiration and you just run with it and it just ends up being something that you didn't really imagine, which is kind of what happened, I think. So this work is up close photographs of, Z of Saffron. And they are laid out in a kind of calligraphic style to spell out the word for woman in Farsi. Word for woman in Farsi is Zan, which is where the title of the work comes from. It's a two little letter word, a Z and an N. And the letter N is known to look like a breast. It's like an inside joke almost in Iran. And you know, it was always interesting to me because, uh, you know, you grow up not talking about breasts or seeing breasts or, you know, but it's, it's it was everywhere in our writing. So I don't know. I just always thought that was great. And the United States are also very sensitive to women's breasts, specifically nipples. So this satisfied me, both worlds for me. You know, it was, <laughs> do you, does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is where my work is kind of heading is, is I want to see what I want to see that makes sense to me that made me laugh that made me feel good, that I want to look at, you know, and I think it's beautiful. And, you know, I get it. And people if they know enough will get it as well. But I think this is where my work is heading. And this is the last thing that I have finalized and put out. Um, thus far that gives me that multicultural feeling i think we're ready for the last question okay. that i'm going to ask you today uh the one that i ask of everyone in every episode and it's getting to the essence of humanness mm -hmm. and creativity uh, especially with that human thread and the mm -hmm. human view i think so if we Look at the heart of all of these things, what matters to you in the world, the things you've expressed in this conversation and in who you are and in your artwork. What is it that really resonates as human in who you are and how you express yourself in the world right now? So I think less about humans and more about energy, I think. It's where my mind goes when you ask me that question. I think okay. centering humans maybe is part of the problem ah. in the world today. Um, I think that it's important to, you know, not to sound like super hippy-dippy, but, like, I think it's important to really look at nature. I mean, I think it's one, you know, there's a lot of things in nature that, bring us together i don't think i've ever had anybody look at a beautiful blue sky and hate it you know or 
music is something like there's there's things in nature that I think will I think you can find all your answers in nature I guess is what I'm trying to say and that's beyond humans right it, it encompasses all and um, I think sometimes maybe we get too lost in our own selves and sometimes it's good to give yourself a break a little bit and you know go look at the way the leaves move on a tree branch and try to learn from that there's a lot to learn from that you know and how we're connected to i i yeah. i love that answer because you're right that i think we take a human centric human forward view and that's part of what leads to us deciding that everything is here for our consumption the earth and nature are here for us to figure out how we can uh, mm -hmm. capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So like, you know how some people have like a diss, they say, go read a book. So I've come up with a new diss and it's go plant a tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go grow something, go grow a tomato and watch it grow. You can learn a lot from that. Re-engage and be part of it. Sarah, thank you for everything that you've shared here. I appreciate learning from you and being able to share this forward and for your trusting me to have this conversation. Yeah, it was really great. Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate it. I was very nervous and you made me feel very calm and accepted. And I really, really, really appreciate that, especially during this time. Good. So thank you. Good. Well, thank you. That was my conversation with interdisciplinary artist Sarah McDari in today's Humanitu conversation of humanness and creativity. You can learn more about Sarah in the show notes on our website at humanitu.com. It's said that we have the power to create the world that we wish to live in, to be the good that we want to be surrounded by. And so that's why Humanitu exists, at least in part. So if you'd like to have more of that good stuff that Humanitu offers in the world, then I invite you to post reviews on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and other players. And to share the podcast on your social media pages, tell friends, you know, whoever, however. Together we can cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. We can create the world that we wish to live in. If you have feedback on this conversation or the Humanity Podcast series, you can send me an email. It's adam at humanity.com. You also can reach me by Instagram direct message, at humanity. So now here we are, at the time at the end of every episode, when I ask you a question, I ask you to consider something within yourself. How are you living humanness and creativity in your life? I am Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thank you for being here.